Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Proops. Lubrious confines of the Northwest's most devastating improvisational emporium, the Upfront Theater, right here in Bellingham. The state where soon marijuana will be completely legal and you'll be able to buy it over the counter just like chiclets. With nothing but a sassy nod and a wad of cash in your pocket, you'll be able to stride manfully into any marijuana emporium in this fine state and lay down your cash and walk away with the killer bud. But please, don't smoke in your car unless you brought a pipe. Uh, There's going to be resistance to it, but I think you'll find the resistance is going to fail. After uh, they find out how much money Washington State makes and all these people with their raised minimum wage here... Finally able to buy that 16th of an ounce they've had their eye on. (laughs) Colorado made $5 million in the first week. So I think you're going to find that Utah and Nevada might not be as religious as we thought they once were. (laughs) When Oklahoma legalizes marijuana, then you can call me and tell me the country's ready for the Filipino lesbian that I want to be president. Uh, for those of you listening out in Proopcast land, this is an awesome time to cut one up or light one up or pour one down. And if you're looking after children, this is an awesome time to put them in the other room <laughs> with a video of the wheels on the truck go round and round. Because uh, you don't want them interrupting. And if you're a child and you're listening in your uh, blanket fort in the dead of night because your parents don't want you to hear the word cocksucker said on a podcast, <laughs> welcome to the show. People have again, been so fantastically generous here. Uh, in Bellingham, I've received so many gifts. Thank you for all of the ones. Thank you for the illicit gifts. I appreciate those. I won't be naming names on those, uh, but thank you. I want you to know that I appreciate it. Lynette, a lovely Australian woman, is here tonight, and she gave me a package of Tim Tams. Now, I don't know if anyone... Exactly. To our Australian friends who are listening, uh, 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 good eye, mates. Uh, good on you. Good bless. Uh, my name's Greg. Uh, <laughs> If you're listening in New Zealand, my name is Grieg. Uh, Tim Tams are an amazing uh, food. If you're high, I don't think there's anything better than a Tim Tam except cold pizza. And uh, if you eat them together, it's two good things at once. Uh, they're, they're little chocolate cookies, and you dip them in. Is it tea or milk or whatever? And that's called the Tim Tam Slam, right? You, and so you can get through a whole box of these, which I intend on doing a little bit later. Not during the show, but thank you for that, Lynette. And she writes, uh, an Australian fan, their Australian favorite snack for late at night. You know what? I find they're not just for breakfast anymore, Lynette. <laughs> they're for any time of the day or night. Liam, a young man in the crowd here, has given me a giant bottle of mischief vodka. <laughs> you notice vodka's never named, this is going to end well. <laughs> notice there's not a brand of vodka called A Quiet Night at Home. Mischief, And then there's what? One, there's one with like a black death skull on it and shit. Vodka always comes with a lethal warning. We're going to pour a little of that in right now. Let's get that going. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, so thank you for that, Liam. That was uncommonly kind of you. I also received banana bread from Liam because uh, you work in a bakery, do you? Where's your... Yes. Where's your bakery? Where? In Seattle. You drove up from Seattle for this? Look at you, buddy. 
Well done. Grazie mille. Uh, uh, for those of you to, who are listening out in Proofcast let me orient you. Bellingham is some uh, 80 miles, is it, north of Seattle and uh, several decades uh, away. <laughs> Just turn left at Ferndale and uh, you'll run directly into 1986. It's awesome. For those of you listening in Everett, oh, wait, no one's listening in Everett. <laughs> <laughs> so it required some effort to get here, and you brought vodka and banana bread. What a stalwart individual you are. What a lucky lady that woman who's with you is. <laughs> Evidently, banana bread's not the only thing he's baking. Wow. Evidently, there's a zucchini loaf that's going down pretty goddamn well. Uh, this is from a, a, another lady. Uh, Mer- Mary, I can't read your name here. Mary, Meredith? Meredith, thank you, Meredith. Uh, and you share a name with a very fabulous classical composer. Uh, n- not Meredith, her last name. Uh, hello, Greg. As a simpatico San Francisco Giants fan, I'd just like to stop the show right now and lose a bunch of listeners by saying that uh, my beloved Giants right now are in first place in the National League as of this recording. And... Um, We've won two-thirds of our games, and we show no sign of slowing. Now, I hesitate to mention this at all, because the first thing that you can do, besides being on the cover of Sports Illustrated to queer your team completely, is mention how well they're doing at the beginning of June. Because D-Day just happened, and the Germans were in first place in June of 1944. They really were. And then a year later, they finished last. It was bad. So you want, you want to be careful about tempting fate. But what she gave me is something that's unbelievably fantastic. It's a 1962 Giants album. 62 was um, one of the Giants' thwarted years before we actually won a World Series. And uh, we, uh, we went to the World Series and we played the New York Yankees. And Willie Mays was on that team and Willie McCovey and Juan Marichal and Jack Sanford. And she gave me a lovely keepsake here that she's been carrying around with her. Originally, it went to Hiroshi Hata of Richmond, California. Well, thank you, Mr. Hata, for whatever, wherever you are now. Uh, Juan Marichal. I haven't read any of this or looked at it yet, but I'm, I can't wait to because uh, I'm always excited by Giants lore. Uh, and I love, in the old time pictures, the catcher's wearing a backward baseball cap. No helmet or anything like that. Now catchers dress like they're playing bloody hockey. Uh, but in my day, they didn't wear little things under their neck, and they often got hit in the chest and the throat, and umpires got hit in the nuts, and it was fun. It was great fun. There was a lot more danger. And in 1962, I guarantee you, pitchers threw at batters' heads all the time. And the umpire never went like, hey, stop it. Uh, Willie Mays was on his ass more than he was standing up, is my recollection. I'm not that old. I don't remember 1962. I was born in 1985, so it's difficult for me. (laughs) It's not that funny. I've been on the road uh, with uh, my very good friend and colleague and uh, working partner, Ryan Stiles, for the last uh, couple of days. And... uh, As discussed on the last podcast we did here uh, in late October last year, uh, Ryan uh, did what very few people do, which is put his money where his mouth is and open his own improv club in the town he lives in. And uh, it's very exciting because uh, lots of improvisers get to play here. They're having a festival later in the year, and there's always great events here at the Upfront Theater. And uh, so I ask you to support the Upfront Theater if you're within the sound of my voice. And I think the people in this room are. Uh, But if you're listening elsewhere, 
and you're visiting Bellingham, it's an awesome place to play. A lot of people say, oh, I'm going to quit doing my thing and I'm going to go back to where I live and I'm going to build a theater and help people. Uh, but Ryan actually did it and hooray for him. Yeah. So generous. And that's what a right person does. Uh, we were, uh, Ryan and I were doing a couple gigs over the weekend. We were in uh, Victoria IA, uh, British Columbia IA. And uh, then we were in Coquitlam, the quaintly named Coquitlam, uh, doing a little two-hander where we just sit on a sofa and basically, I don't know how to put it delicately, bullshit with each other. Uh, and it went quite well. Uh, Victoria IA is, is, is really pretty. Uh, it's the city that died of quaint. Um, <laughs> Have you, have you tried our fudge? Yes, I've had your fudge. Have you had the ice wine? Fuck away, okay? <laughs> I've had the ice wine, I've had the fudge. Now get off my whale dick, all right? <laughs> there's seaplanes everywhere and they want you to go out and look at whales and uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, uh, there's no guarantee when you go on these whale tours, by the way, that you're going to see a whale. You're simply supposed to go out and one of the whale tours says hydrophone so you can hear them. Like, so you're what? Sitting in a giant raft with a bunch of other people, uncomfortable, sunburning all day, wearing headphones, going, wait a minute, I think I heard a whale. What do the whales do? Do they're like, hey, boat. I'm trying, this is my rookery here. You're running over the baby. Get the fuck out of here. No, of course, whales go like, which means, hey, asshole. You're making a lot of noise. I'm trying to have a calf. You think whales call their babies calves? They probably have a whale word for it, like... <laughs> I was trying to learn whale, but, you know, there's, the Rosetta Stone whale is such a shitty program. <laughs> I much prefer Rosetta Stone chimpanzee, which is a lot easier. <laughs> you know, the, the whale one's hard. There's all that intonation. It's like Japanese. There's like 70,000 words for salt in whale. You know what I mean? Like... I don't have time to learn a thousand words for brine, you know what I mean? Like, like oh, that's the salty kind that gets in my, my eye or whatever, you know, all right, all right. Cool it, Moby Dick. Uh, so we've had a great time doing that, and now we're here in Bellingham, and uh, we're back to Los Angeles tomorrow, and I wanted to jump right in to the show. If you uh, uh, want to write us, you can write us at smartestofthespecialthing.com, and if you... Um, want to uh, write me personally, it's fanmail4greg at gmail.com, and I try to answer all these emails, and we have a lot here, but before we get underway, and we should start the show soon, we really should, um, uh, there were, I went on the Upfront website uh, today to look at, to see if there was any, uh, what they had written about me for this show tonight, and this is what they wrote, whose line is it actor, whose line is it anyway actor, Greg Proops is coming, <laughs> Well, I was excited about the gig, <laughs> but I didn't arrive fully. June 8th, Greg Proops, the smartest man in the world podcast, will be on stage live at the Upfront Theater. Um, a steal at $20. Uh, one grep, G-R-E-P, Proops, one podcast, one night. Gr whose line is it uh, anyway after grep, Proops is coming, it says. So they've flipped the G around and turned it into a P, which gives me extra P's in my name. So now I can move to uh, Greece if I add a couple <laughs> and be grabbed. Uh, I was excited. I, I've been misspelled a lot of ways. I've been George P. Rops and I've been Gag Poops and I've been Jez Poops, and, but I've never been Grep Poops before. So it's, it's, I assume that's because of the uh, marijuana situation up here that someone was looking at the G and hit the P and went, you know what? It's all, you know what? It's. It's all one big ghetto, man, out in space. 
You know, the alphabet is like a binding thing that holds you down, man. I fucking, letters are just symbols of what I want to fucking create. So why not, if it's grep proofs, think about it. The G's gone. Now we're into the last name before the first name's even done, man. Uh, Edith writes me, and Edith writes, uh, uh, I'm a couple of episodes behind, she writes, so I'm not sure if you've already had this brought up by the peanut gallery. I love that people still use the expression, the peanut gallery. I couldn't be more excited. There's a lot of young people here tonight, and none of you have ever heard the expression, the peanut gallery, before, I'm sure. But the peanut gallery is the little chorus that chimes in whenever anything's wrong. Uh, I make lots of mistakes on the show, and as you know, to err is human, to prove divine. And um, uh, I, this was the mistake I made. I received a record when I was in Chicago, or Chirac, as they insist on calling it. Um, that's because of the gunplay. Um, a, a, a record that was made to celebrate Henry Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's record in 1974, and it's called Move Over Babe. And I got the lyrics wrong. And this is the kind of things that people write me. Uh, she wrote, it's not move over. I said, move over, babe. Here comes Henry, and he's feeling real mean. And I said, if there's one thing you could know about Henry Aaron as a boss player and a human being is that he never was mean. He was the nicest player ever. I got it wrong. She wrote, move over, babe. Here comes Henry, and he's swinging mean. I'm going to force you to listen to this for just a second here. This is a white guy tribute record from 1974. <laughs> Can you hear it? A lot of you are asking yourself, if I was a white guy and I wanted to write a song about the slugger Henry Aaron, would I do this? We called this in the 70s country rock. There was groups like Poco and Lobo and shit like that. And Poco, was it Poco or Lobo who did, or was it Bread? Bread kind of sounded like that too. Do you remember Bread? Baby, I'm a won't you. Well, you, you kind of feel like you're falling asleep while you're singing. <laughs> Baby, I'm gonna need you. You're the only one. Uh, Al Stewart, who did Year of the Cat, I think had the wimpiest voice of all time. In a country where the time that time. You go strolling through the crowd like Peter Lally. <laughs> Contemplating you come. Uh, so yes, he's swinging mean, and he did in fact break the record before Barry Bonds broke his record uh, after that, uh, and like that. So thank you for the correction. Um, and that was an artist named, oh my God, he has the best name too, and I didn't say it. Um, oh, please come up. Bill Slayback. <laughs> And, by the way, it's move over, babe, comma, here comes Henry, exclamation point. I can't cross it out, but I'm figuratively crossing out the exclamation point. Uh, but well done, everybody, on that one. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, who writes me here? Uh, someone named Luke writes and says, Liebster Greg, I've been mining the opinion of every woman in my contacts on the subject of Cormac McCarthy. I asserted on a previous vodcast that no women like Cormac McCarthy. How did you arrive at this decision, Greg? Well, that mostly men like him is how I arrived. And my wife worked at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, which is a very groovy bookstore owned by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And in the, all the years she worked there, um, she said no woman ever came to the counter and asked for a Cormac McCarthy book. But men constantly came up and asked for all the pretty horses and stuff like that. Uh, you guys know who Cormac McCarthy is? It's okay if you don't. Uh, I'm, I'm here to educate. Um, <laughs> 
I've been mining the opinion of every woman in my contacts on the subject of Cormac McCarthy. No positive responses. Super scientific research. <laughs> Did you, am I to understand, Luke, that you have gone through all your contacts on your phone and simply texted every girl that you know and gone, do you like Cormac McCarthy? And the, the answers ranged from what to no to huh? <laughs> I bet there was a couple of fu- vehement, fuck no, I like Zadie Smith or whatever. Uh, Greg, you may have stumbled upon a universal truth. Uh Uh-huh. Thank you. (laughs) Look out death and taxes. Fucking A. If I can overturn the paradigm that says women enjoy Cormac McCarthy, I think death is next, and we are going to all live forever in a magic wonderland. Sadly, it'll be a magic wonderland full of Cormac McCarthy books, so the women will have little to read. (laughs) Crazy that a candidate for finest American author of the 20th century has only fans of the male variety. If you don't know who he is, he wrote All the Pretty Horses. He wrote The Crossing. He wrote... um, uh, uh, the Cities of the Plains He wrote No Country for Old Men And he wrote The Road uh, Those would be his famous ones He also wrote a recent uh, play that was on HBO That had Sam Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones in it, was it? I can't remember uh, In any case, he's one of my favorite authors um, Let's see here Crazy, uh, uh, if you and Jennifer Jennifer's my wife and the co-author of this show If you and Jennifer would care to brainstorm some theories As to why this is so, please do Well, I've already given you her evidence uh, and, and he writes to the NSA I ask everyone who writes me on fanmail4greg at gmail.com to uh, say hello to the NSA because Google uh, uh, pliantly coughs up uh, all information to the NSA at all times and having just seen Glenn Greenwald recently in Amsterdam and the next day he flew to Moscow to visit Edward Snowden the woman got up at the end of the Glenn Greenwald concert yeah and um, as if he does a concert like Glenn Greenwald's going to come out and go let me hear you say yeah um <laughs> She got up and went, uh, we don't know where Glenn's going, but he has to leave and he can't stay after to sign books. But we think he's going to Moscow. And it's like, way to go getting him killed. Um, Because you know that Edward Snowden's on the lam there in Moscow. And if he comes back to the United States, he faces a great deal of punishment, perhaps incarceration for all time, simply for exposing the fact that our government is spying on everyone in the world and all of us at all times. And that we've... uh, um, uh, uh, let me put it this way. Glenn Greenwald won a Pulitzer Prize uh, with Laura Poitras, the uh, um, uh, filmmaker, uh, for exposing these lies that the government has foisted upon us. And I think it's quite an important issue. And the fact that a man had to split to Russia, and this isn't the 70s, uh, for his own safety, and that our government said to him, as I've said on the show before, forgive me for repeating myself, our Attorney General Eric Holder said, hey, if he comes back to the States, we promise not to execute him. <laughs> I don't think there's any way that's more seductive to get someone to come back to America than to say you won't be executed. However, we have a cattle prod with your name on it, and I hope your ball's like ice and then fire. So he writes to the NSA, yo, NSA, how about you take pry and hack its by somewhere off my dick? I don't know what take pry means, but I think you left out a word there, but thank you for that, Luke. Uh, and so because he uh, mentioned Cormac McCarthy here, and we have women in the crowd tonight, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from my favorite Cormac McCarthy book, Blood Meridian, which, thank God, hasn't been made into a movie. Uh, The story of Blood Meridian is this. Uh, A teenage boy joins a gang of scalp hunters uh, right after the Mexican-American War, and they kill fucking almost everyone they meet and cut their hair off and take it back and get money for it. Uh, It's a true story, uh, however uh, extrapolated into novel form. The crowd's gone quiet. That doesn't sound fun at all. (laughs) 
That's your favorite novel, Greg? Well, there's some majestic prose in it, and I think you'll find if you read it uh, that your mind might change about a lot of things uh, because Cormac McCarthy is a very uh, adept writer. And uh, here's a theory that he puts forth. I'm always preaching peace on the show because I don't believe any war is worth it. I don't believe the war in Afghanistan was worth it. I don't believe having a torture camp is worth it. I don't believe the war in Iraq was worth it. I don't believe any war is worth it because wars... Wars are held by the rich so that they may prosper from them. They are not held on anyone else's behalf. But what about justified wars? There are no fucking justified wars. If it was up to us, we wouldn't fight each other at all at any time. We'd all get high and make candles. I don't believe that people's impulse is to war with each other every second of the day. But there was always murder and stuff like that, Greg. And what about... Yeah, I love your argument. It's really persuasive. Um... If you can name me a war that America's fought that the rich didn't benefit from and the poor weren't the fodder for, then I will gladly support the next war. When the heads of all the corporations that make all the armament go to that war and have to stand on the front line and put their ass in the line of fire, then I will believe that the war is for a greater good and that we're a force for democracy in the world. You can't say you're a force for democracy in the world and then have a torture camp that's been open for years and years and years. Yeah, but there's those people that are in that torture camp haven't been tried or even fucking charged. So there you are. Um, I thought the boring preachy part came later in the show. Sometimes it does. This tonight, not so much. First of all, this one is uh, what Cormac McCarthy states about war. One of the characters that rides with uh, the uh, band of bad guys in Blood Meridian is a character named The Judge, and he's six foot six and has no hair upon his body at all, and is quite large and can do everything. He's either handed as a spider, he can speak every language. So you may infer that he is a supernatural being, or you may infer whatever you like. I don't want to spoil the book for you. Here's what The Judge says when they're sitting around the fire one night. War was always here. Before man was, war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and will be. That way and not some other way. War is the ultimate game because war is at last a forcing of the unity of existence. War is God. Yeah. Now, if you're in a violent line of work, that might seem apparent. Uh, And if you look around the newspaper and see what's going on in Syria and with the Boko Haram in Africa and uh, with everything that's happening all over the world, you might get the idea that war is God because it's something And in in Ukraine, everywhere you can look, uh, people are making war all the time. Uh, But I, I again, assure you that it's not uh, regular people that go like, hey, let's have a fucking war because I'd like my village to be burned to the ground and everyone to be fucking sexually violated. It's uh, entities like companies and uh, uh, belief systems that cause all this shit. Here's one that I think you'll find a little more um, illuminating and a little more poetic. The kid who's the protagonist of the book, if there is one, uh, gets lost from the company and he finds himself um, walking alone. And this is what happens to him in the dead of night. The stars burned with a lidless fixity and they drew nearer in the night until toward dawn he was stumbling among the windstones of the uttermost ridge to heaven, a barren range of rock so enfolded in that gaudy house that stars lay awash at his feet and migratory spalls of burning matter crossed constantly about him on their chartless reckonings. Oh, yeah. You need a thesaurus and any other tiny dinosaur you can find. When you read Cormac McCarthy, uh, Claudia from Fayetteville, North Carolina writes, uh, and I, I also said that no women like Steely Dan. Evidently, I, 
I'm a middle-aged guy. I like Steely Dan. I have every reason to like baseball and Steely Dan. I'm 54 fucking years old. I have a right to sit on a couch, put headphones on, smoke a joint, and go like this. My wife hates Steely Dan beyond measure. She likes she like, she, Lou Reed and Bob Dylan, you know, the band, whatnot. She has eclectic taste. Uh, I like Steely Dan. Um, and uh, this woman writes me, Claudia from Fayetteville, North Carolina, she signs it. I beg to differ, starts the letter, Mr. Proops. I, a woman, I am a woman and like both Cormac McCarthy and Steely Dan. P.S. Fuck you, NSA. Thank you for that, Claudia from Fayetteville. Thank you for liking Steely Dan. I like Steely Dan, too. Why don't you play a Steely Dan song, Peter? See if we can all get in the... Oh, fuck yeah. There's no dancing to Steely Dan. This is what you do to Steely Dan. Now you can see my wife, my, my wife hates it. I love this one. You were high. It was a cry in disgrace. They saw you on the counter. By your keys. Was a book of numbers and your remedies. Really? How can you not love that? All right, you can take that down was a book of numbers and your remedies, right? right. Fucking A. I love it. Uh, let's see. Alexis from Medford, Oregon writes, Fuck you! <laughs> With an exclamation point. I detest exclamation points. I feel like if you're saying fuck you at the beginning of a letter, you've made your point emphatically. <laughs> I'm a 40-year-old woman who loves Steely Dan, love the licks, Okay, granted, I also like Lisa Stansfield. I also said that all women love Lisa Stansfield. After the show in Paris where I asserted that all women love Lisa Stansfield, my wife took me aside and went, all women do not fucking like Lisa Stansfield. <laughs> and I was like, I think you'll find you're wrong. She's like, but I'm a woman, therefore I count in the column that doesn't like it. Except she fucking does like it. I know she does, secretly. <laughs> do you have the Lisa Stansfield jam?
very proven. Very proven. Fuck you, Alexis. All women do too like it. <laughs> she mentions Steely Dan. You'd think a group named after a vibrator would have a bigger female following. <laughs> Steely Dan is a character in a William Burroughs novel called Naked Lunch. And it is a giant dildo named Steely Dan, which is quite awesome. Uh, I got a letter from Finland. In the Amsterdam episode, I'm a little harsh on Finland. I made a little more fun of them than I wanted to because I really enjoyed being in Helsinki a couple of weeks ago. However, the crowd in Amsterdam was, uh, how shall I put this? Hmm. You know, they were a little, you know, they, they could have been swifter. <laughs> they were fabulous and I love them and I love Amsterdam beyond all measure. But uh, they weren't getting all the jokes. I made a Jimi Hendrix reference and the whole crowd was like, uh-huh. and I thought, <laughs> wow. Uh, in any case, uh, a Finnish lady wrote me here, and, uh, and you may well ask, well, how do you know when she's done? Um, well, she's not Finnish, but I guess her grandfather was. Her name is Janet. Janet writes me and says, Dear Greg, I hope this letter reaches you prior to your appearance in Helsinki. Oops. Uh, I'm an American of Finnish descent and proud of it. As was Timu, uh, the hockey player who played for the, uh, 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 the Anaheim Ducks, is it? Um, Timu just retired this year. He was from Finland as well. There's not that many famous Finnish people, but there are a few. Sibelius, uh, Lasse Viren, who was a, a tremendous long-distance runner of my childhood, was, uh, won the five and dime in 72, 76? 76. You can put your phone away. Unless you're reading Cormac McCarthy online right now. Uh, as a child, I always knew they reached... Da, da, da. Um, my teachers could not remember how to pronounce our last name, uh, Haltunen. When my husband married into the family, my mother took pity on him and explained the easiest way to pronounce it. Halt to nuns. Finnish is absolutely incomprehensible. I tried to learn how to say good evening. And I also tried to learn how to say cheers. And when I asked, the Finnish people there went, that's one of the hardest things we could teach you. Because <laughs> in Scandinavia, it's pretty easy. In Norway, ancient skull. It's not so hard. And, and tog and shit like that. I, as I said on the show, uh, the Finns have the best greeting in the world, which is, hey. Which works out perfect for me, because I'm always like, hey. But their language is uh, uh, very elfish. Uh, there was one word that had so many intonations on use that I lost my shit at one point. They went, the words pronounced, My Uncle Bernie proudly proclaimed in his book, Finns are fun people. I, I don't know that book, uh, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing, unlike Cormac McCarthy, women will like it. With that in mind, I offer you the following observations. Uh, Finns are tremendous readers. Helsinki has numerous daily papers. It does. It has more daily papers than any city in the world. Uh, and um, uh, For how big it is, there's only about half a million people, and there's dozens of papers. Among the largest bookstores in Europe, there are vast numbers of public libraries, and the literacy rate is nearly 100%. On top of that, I did not meet one Finnish person who didn't speak at least English, possibly Russian, and maybe a couple of other languages as well. And on top of that, their internet connection in Finland is the fastest, hardest internet you will ever ride in your life. You can't get over how fast shit downloads in fucking Finland. Uh, it's a scandal in this country how shitty our internet service is. Finland has been an independent nation since 1917, 650 years under Swedish domination. That sounds like an awesome title for a book. 
and is in fact my next novel, 650 Years Under Swedish Domination. Get down on the floor, Greg. You've been very naughty. Oh, stop it, you Swedish tease. I'm not teasing. I'm going to punish you. What accent were you doing there? Don't fucking ask questions. Between 1809 and 1917, there were 42 wars between the Finns and the Russians, most of which the Finns lost in stunning fashion due to the size of the uh, Russian army. Uh, and then, of course, they had the Winter War of 3940. The Finns fought three wars during World War II. We only fought one long one, but they fought several. Uh, what, what is the point of this mini-history lesson? Finland and her people are the embodiment of honor and compassion. Following the Winter War, the Finnish government decreed 40,000 Karelians, that was the part annexed by Russia, had to be absorbed by Finland's remaining citizens. That meant that housing, jobs, and food had to be found for all these people. Additionally, Finland's people worked together to build and create a new industry so it would pay off the crippling reparations. Da, 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 da. Now, we have an argument going on in this country all the time that you hear on the news about what we like to call immigration and how people are coming over the border from Mexico to steal our busboy jobs and whatnot. And how that uh, somehow America, even though we're an entire country of immigrants, otherwise um, I think you'd find that the fucking uh, Snoqualmie's would be running the state uh, if we weren't a nation of immigrants. Uh, the idea that immigrants in any way diminish this country by coming here is the most insane and insipid notion that could possibly be put forward. The fact that if you want a homogeneous fucking white people state, you can go to parts of Canada and visit them anytime you like. Um, <laughs> If you want to live without Chinese food and Thai food and you want to live in a fucking place where there's no hip-hop, you can have that fucking dream world for yourself. <laughs> I live in Los Angeles where if it wasn't for the Latin people who live there, nothing would ever fucking get done because the white people of L.A. are so fucking impolite you can't believe it. They won't get off their phone when they're talking to other people. They try to run you over when they're driving and shit. And I've never had a Mexican person ever be anything but courtly and fucking polite at all times in my presence. I'm so bloody sick. I played in Arizona, and they're so hopped up about uh, uh, immigration there. And I kept saying to them, could it be that the Indians who built the Pueblos thousands of years ago that were perfectly uh, constructed find that your current stance on immigration somewhat ironic? <laughs> I sincerely hope you enjoy your time in Helsinki. I did. And I know you'll enjoy their fabulous vodka. I did. Finlandia. And by the way, if you're listening, Finlandia, we're open for sponsorship on this show. Not that I don't, <laughs> not that I don't love mischief, but uh, Finlandia... <laughs> Finlandia is quite good. Uh, with best regards, Janet Kent. P.S. Fuck off, NSA. Thank you. Um, so if you have a chance to visit Finland, it's pretty wild. Everyone kept saying to me, you need to go up to Lapland. Uh, and then they were telling me, uh, in the wintertime, it's dark for three months. And in the summertime, the sun never goes down for three months. And you're like, huh. So am I going to kill someone while I'm up there? Out of non-change of atmosphere, because uh, even it's light out here in uh, in Bellingham at this time of night. But when I left the gig in Finland, it was like the sun was still up uh, in the middle of the night. It's pretty exciting, man. And they have reindeer. <laughs> yeah, they do. They're cute as can be. I mean, they weren't like walking around Helsinki. It's not like you know, they're like oh look, ching 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 ching. You know, like you know, da 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 it wasn't like that. But it is, it is damn exciting. Uh, and, and you see a laps occasionally. And you could buy giant lap hats and shit like that. It's fun. Uh, I've, never really, for some, I've never been to Scandinavia that much. But over the last two years, I was in Oslo and then uh, Helsinki. And then we're going to um, 
Where the fuck are we going? We're going to Tallinn, Estonia in October. I know, right? So that'll be weird. One thing you need to know about all these countries is whatever the Vikings came over to, the, uh, to uh, uh, across on their ceaseless fucking peregrinations over the ocean, um, they brought everyone with them. The Vikings were largely Danes, but they were also Norwegians, Swedes, Finns, Latvians, Estonians, Lithuanians, uh, and often Irish. There, there was always Irish people on Viking voyages, for your information. Does that make your life any better? No, but you can fucking drop that at the next fucking circle you're standing in where people are passing dope. Um, Maya Angelou passed away, and we haven't had a chance to give her proper props on this show. Uh, is there a Maya Angelou track, Peter, on the... Oh, we can't play the iPod. All right, well, never mind about that. In any case, uh, Dr. Angelou, uh, or Angel, Angel, Angelou, as she pronounced her name, um, Maya Angelou, for your uh, information, was an amazing human being and a great American, and uh, they had a big memorial for her over the weekend last, which will have been two weeks past at this point. Um, and this is from uh, the Bellingham paper today. This is the Bellingham Herald. Uh, they bought a... Really? There's dissent in the crowd? You guys, if you didn't buy the Bellingham Herald, how would you know where to shop on the weekend? Extreme store-wide remodeling sale. There's so much advertising uh, in, the, uh, in the Bellingham Herald. And then this is the... Uh, Whatcom County Community Charity Calendar, which is a very nice thing to print. And then they have celebrations here, and it's all the people who graduated and got engaged and whatnot. Uh, engagement, Tempest Duke and Daniel Hinderley. Tempest Duke? What an awesome name. You know, once upon a time, if your name was Tempest Duke, there's only one job you could have done it. But we, we're past those days now. Tempest Duke and Daniel Hinderley both of Linden announced their engagement their wedding at Lairmont Manor in Fairhaven Tempest is the daughter of Bruce Duke she is a stay at home mom Daniel is the son of Eric Hinderley uh, and Allison Biggers of, of Idaho Daniel is an anode handler what's anode anode A-N-O-D-E no one in this room is blue collar everyone in this room is a sissy high tech fucking piece of shit well, how do you say it? Anode. Anode. What's, what's anode? It's an electrical, electrical device. Thank you for telling me. An anode handler and crane operator at Alcoa and Taco Works. The happy couple met through a mutual friend. That's really sweet. Well, that's not what I wanted to read you. <laughs> but because you were so bloody cynical about the Bellingham Herald, I thought I'd read you a couple of items that would melt your heart. And one of them has a guy who's an anode handler. Also, I don't mean to pass judgment or anything, but she's already a stay-at-home mom? <laughs> Evidently, it wasn't just anode that was getting handled. Tempest Duke. I want... If you have a girl, promise me you'll name them Tempest. That's so awesome. Or any Shakespeare play. Cymbeline, Timons of Athens, Two Noble Kinsmen. Here's my daughter. Here's my daughter, Mac Lady Macbeth. Poet Maya Angelou remembered uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They had a, a big uh, ceremony for her uh, on the weekend. Maya Angelou liked to say that people will forget what you said or did in your life, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. That's an amazing quote. 
Um, and keep that in mind. I try to as life goes through, but it's hard not to be a dick all the time because why, Greg? Because it's fun and easy. But the point is this. Uh, it's how you make people feel uh, that, that really counts. Uh, th- they do remember what you say and do, but the, when you meet people and people always go, oh, I met so-and-so. And then the question is always, were they nice? And it's like, if they were nice, people go, yeah, they were. And it doesn't matter what they said to you. Uh, in any case, Bill Clinton was there, Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, da-da-da-da. Family and friends uh, gathered uh, one of the 20th century's most famous black writers. Well, I would say writers, but it's significant that she's black. Uh, and by the way, Maya Angelou, for your information, six feet tall. Oh, fuck yeah. And had a lot of jobs. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, she was a, a, a teacher at uh, Wake Forest University. She taught for 32 years. Um, she liked to be called Dr. Angelo because of all the honorary degrees she received. Now, by the way, I'm not giving a eulogy tonight. Usually we say people are swirling in the stars. That's a given. Maya Angelou is making the stars sing as we speak. And uh, with her six-foot-tall uh, frame up there, she's riding a fucking nebulae right now. Uh, there is no warning here, they say, her son said at the end of the, all of this. Hers is a remarkable life. Uh, If you're thinking about what you're doing with your life, um, you may think about Maya Angelou's life because um, she was not born into privilege and she didn't have anything handed to her and she was able to do quite a lot uh, in her 86 years. Uh, She was, let's see here. Um, Harris was a remarkable life, linking worlds of civil rights, poetry, acting, and teaching uh, and to those present at the two-hour-long tribute. Bill Clinton got up and said, um, her voice, we'll see, Michelle Obama said, Her voice lifted me right out of my own little head. Um, She did it, Bill Clinton said, her great gift is her action-packed life where she was always paying attention. And from the time she started writing her books and her poetry, she was basically doing, was calling our attention to the things she'd been paying attention to. And she did it with a clarity and power that will wash over people as long as there is a written and spoken language. Tall and majestic, Angelo added heft to her spoken words with a deep and sonorous voice. She once described herself as a poet in love with the music of language. She recited the most popular presidential inaugural poem in history, On the Pulse of Mourning, when Clinton opened his first term in 1993. There had only been one other poet invited to speak at an inauguration. John F. Kennedy had Robert Frost speak at his, and he wrote a poem. Maya Angelou's poem that she read um, at Clinton's inauguration in 93 was a reaction and a, an addition to um, Robert Frost's poem. Hers is called On the Pulse of Morning. And she talks about everyone in this country and goes through all the different nationalities and all the different genders and everything that's going on uh, because she was sensitive in that regard. She was without a voice for five years. This is what happened to my Angelo. Clinton remembered that voice and how Angelo chose not to speak for five years after she was raped by her mother's boyfriend as a child. Now... She was a victim of rape, as so many women are. And because she grew up in a rough neighborhood, she accused the guy, and the guy got arrested and was going to be tried, but he was killed, possibly by members of his, her family, before he could come to trial. That's the kind of world she was living in as a child. She did not speak for five years. She's one of the most famous poets this country has produced. Bill Clinton said, she was without a voice for five years. By the way, the boring preachy part's already started here. Uh, She developed the greatest voice on the planet. God loaned her his voice. I would have said God loaned her her voice. Because it's obvious that God is a woman. Because no man could create the universe. It's called the Big Bang for a reason. Not, Not the disappointing... Yeah. Only a woman could feel that big of a bang. 
If a man created the universe, it would be the disappointingly early theory of the universe. <laughs> he decided he wanted it back, uh, according to Bill Clinton. Angelo was born in Marguerite Johnson in St. Louis and raised in Stamps, Arkansas, and San Francisco. Her life included writing poetry by age nine, giving birth as a single mother by 17, and becoming San Francisco's first black streetcar conductor. She worked as a coordinator for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She lived for years in Egypt and Ghana. She married a, uh, a Greek sailor, and she married a South African activist, and she worked with Malcolm X. Her life is unbelievable, and she's a great American. I just wanted to bring her up because, for several reasons, there's been a lot of not great Americans dominating the news lately. There's been... A lot of assholes who've been going around shooting people. And I will never, ever say their name on the show. And my exception that I take with the uh, media all over the world is that we name these psychopaths who go out and shoot everyone. Um, there's no reason to give them a name or a face. They should remain the faceless sociopaths that they are and a blight on our fucking world. The victims of the people who commit these acts of violence are the ones that need to be venerated and remembered because they are the ones who are precious to us. I get very, very, very tired of this gun argument going around and these cats walking around with the open carry thing that you've seen on TV where guys are walking around with uh, giant weapons on their back or sidearms and they go into Chipotle's or Starbucks or whatever and they're like, this is the law, we get to carry them around and stuff. You're not proving a point. You're proving that one, your penis is an infinitesimally fucking irrelevant thing. That's what you're proving. The size of the gun is equal to how small your cock is. Two, you're scaring everyone to death, and it's not making the Second Amendment a real argument in this country. Um, there was several shootings in Canada over the last few weeks as well, and it's just tr absolutely tragic, not to mention the one that happened in Belgium. Um, the people who, who, who commit these acts uh, are aberrations. It's not because, oh, that's just how things go down and shit like that. It's not because war is God. It's because we don't have a coherent system in this country. The day that you make obtaining a gun as difficult as, as it is for a woman to obtain an abortion, then I'll believe there's some equity in this fucking world. My wife sent me this. She sent me all of this. My wife sent me this. Uh, this is an interview with Dr. Angelo. What advice do you have for girls? And this I send out to all the girls and to the men as well because you need to know this. To laugh as much as possible. Always laugh. It's the sweetest thing one can do for oneself and one's fellow human being. When people see the laughing face, even if they're jealous of it, their burden is lightened. But do it first for yourself. Laugh and dare to try to love somebody, starting with yourself. Absolutely. Uh, she's, these are the, this is from The Guardian, UK. You can go online and see lots of stuff about Dr. Angelo. These are some of her quotes uh, that she said of her lifetime. Never make someone a priority when all you are to them is an option. If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. Don't complain. Mm. That's a toughie. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. And as I've urged people on the show time and time again, tell your story. Don't fucking wait around. We live in an era where there's the interweb. You have every access, especially this privileged crowd of white people here tonight. You have every access to every means of expressing yourself. Do so. Um, don't sit back on your ass and let the world wash over to you. Over you. Participate. Uh, if you have a story to tell, uh, uh, however tragic or however not tragic, however uplifting it is, tell that fucking story. Don't wait around. Um, you only get one shot at this, you guys, and it goes real fast. Trust me on that one. Mm. 
She was quite ill and couldn't get out of her wheelchair for many last years of her life. And she wrote four books during that time. So if you're sitting around going, well, I'm going to write a book, but I... I do not trust people who don't love themselves and yet tell me I love you. There's an African saying, which is, be careful when a naked person offers you a a shirt. (laughs) This one is absolute poetry. We delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty. Mm. My mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive, and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style. Now, there's a poem I want you to read. That'll be your homework. We were gonna, he said off the mic, we were going to play it on the show, but uh, the iPod wasn't working tonight uh, with the system here. In any case, it's called Phenomenal Woman. And uh, you can go online and look up all of Dr. Angelo's poetry and read them for yourselves. But better than that, you can download them and listen to her read them. Or you can go on YouTube and watch her uh, read them there. She's quite a forceful speaker. And when she gave uh, the inaugural poem at Clinton's inaugural, and I remember being so relieved when Clinton was elected president because we'd had 12 years of Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush. And it was a very dark time, much like the time was right before Obama got elected, when we were like, oh, my God, is this ever going to fucking end? An endless procession of white guys talking about how great white guys are to the exclusion of everyone else and how the poor were evil because they were taking money. During the Reagan era, that's when the welfare queen tag got stuck on stuff. Now, that was tagged on single mothers who were supposedly draining uh, resources from the government and costing us all a bunch of money. Never mind that every giant corporation and that George Herbert Walker's Son was one of the chief players in the SNL scandal of that era. Never mind that all the corporations uh, that have been involved in the banking scandals of recent years, not one of them has gone to jail or been forced to pay significant reparations, and that they get giant bonuses still, and that the banking system hasn't been uh, in any way changed because the bankers write all the laws of this country. Uh, We still have the phrase welfare queen, and that's the kind of... Um, I know I've ranked on Reagan again and again and again on the show. And someone wrote me and said, why don't you rank on Clinton? He did a bunch of bad things, too. And I'm like, well, I would, except fuck you. And two, it's my show. Get your own fucking show. And you can rank on Clinton all you fucking like. Clinton did a lot of things that were disappointing me. There's no question of that. He eviscerated the welfare system. He opened up the fucking borders. He did a lot of bad things that weren't that fucking instructive. But I don't think inside his heart he was a cruel person. And he knew that he made two huge mistakes. And that was one, that he let the Hutus and the Tutsis have a giant civil war in Rwanda and do do a goddamn thing about it. And that he let uh, the Balkans blow up and didn't put any boots on the fucking ground. But having said that, Reagan was almost completely incoherent in his second term. I don't think he was compass menace. Two, um, he was cruel, just like W was cruel. And what I mean cruel, what do you mean by cruel, Greg? The poor are not the enemy in this country. Women are the poor in this country. Therefore, if you feel that the poor are the enemy, you feel women are the enemy because women are the ones who are being underpaid and women are the ones who are trying to raise children. The largest growing segment of homeless population in this country is women veterans. So if you're Mr. Patriotic fucking flag-waving Johnny fucking freedom, I like jets flying over and shit like that, give some consideration to that before you start wagging your ass like a duck's fucking butt sliding down an icy hill back Inform yourself. 
The reason why I'm taking so much time to venerate Dr. Angelo is that we've had Cliven Bundy, and we've had the Duck Dynasty guy, and we've had a variety of dazzling fucking uninformed assholes run their shit off about how racist they are. Cliven Bundy, the dude who's grazing his cattle for free in Nevada that, uh, that Fox News took up as a hero and shit, said in one of his quotes, the Negro does the, the Negro. How fucking wreck... I mean... I don't even know where to begin on fucking thinking like that. Is this 1853? So I wanted to talk about a great American who tried to include everyone. Try to be a rainbow in someone's cloud. I love to see a young girl go out and grab the world by the lapels. Life's a bitch. You've got to go out and kick ass. Courage is the most important of all the virtues. Because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. What does courage mean? Let's discuss it for a second. To fall in line with the status quo and to reiterate things that the government tells you that you know are lies is not courageous. To defy and to eliminate, to shine a light on the truth, to say what's going on for real that requires courage because you'll find in your life, and I'm sure you found it already, many of you have jobs. There are people at your work that'll do anything the boss fucking tells them to do. And we call them in England a job's worth. They're willing to protect their corner to the exclusion of anything else. And you've met these people in your life what, uh, because everything is political. I had a friend say to me once, I don't think there's politics in everything. Well, you're an idiot if you don't think everything's political. The smallest transaction is political. If you're working behind a counter, say, Liam, I come to visit you in Seattle, and I come up to the counter and go like this, uh, yeah, man, I want some banana bread and shit. <laughs> is that a political act or is it not? I'm paying you no deference. I'm paying you no respect. If I'm on my phone... Because as Fran Leibowitz, the enormous wit and uh, 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 tremendous writer, once said, if you're on your phone in public, you're not where you are. You're somewhere else, right? Um, the smallest act is political. If someone doesn't let you cross the street and fucking barges forward in their car, don't you feel like you've been violated in a personal way? Every interaction we have with other people is a political act. You have to have the courage to be courteous. You have to have the courage to be polite. You have to have the courage to let other people have their say no matter how fucking ill-informed and stupid they are. And then fucking take that on board and still try to do what you have to do and move forward. Every woman in the world has to be enormously courageous because they face the possibility of being paid less than men, being treated shittier than men, and being sexually harassed every goddamn minute of their goddamn lives. And if men in this room aren't down with that, you're fucking deluded. Um, but what about men's rights? Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you and your crappy men's rights. Men have all the rights. I'm a white middle-aged guy. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Maya Angelou was courageous. Uh, I've learned you can tell a lot about a person by the way he or she handles these three things. A rainy day lost luggage, and tangled Christmas tree lights. Fifteen jobs Maya Angelou had. We'll go through these quickly. Streetcar conductor, table dancer in a nightclub, paint stripper in a mechanic shop, cook in a hamburger joint in a Creole restaurant, prostitute and madam for lesbian hookers. Now we'll stop here. Because this is where it gets good. As a teenage mother, a struggling Angela faced darker periods in her life in which she worked less than legitimate jobs. Oh, and by the way, if you want to read uh, the jobs she had, 
because I like to cite everything I'm talking about here. Unlike uh, the people you listen to on television, I'm going to... Really, Shannon? You okay? Oh, okay. Go ahead, baby. <laughs> Just to hip everyone in podcast, Shannon. Shannon. Someone walked across the stage in the middle of the show, and it panicked me a little bit. This is from a site called Mashable, and the author is Amanda Wills. Uh, if you want to go on Mashable, you can read all about uh, Maya Angela. There's loads of sites with lots of information about her. This is my favorite sentence in the whole thing. One of those included a madam for a lesbian prostitute and a brief, unsuccessful stint as a prostitute herself. I don't think I've ever read a sentence more intriguing than a brief, unsuccessful stint. What's a successful stint? She later described these experiences in Gather Together in My Name, a book she said was the most painful thing she's ever written. Angelo said that an experience gave her a rich life. She just doesn't suggest it for anybody. If you happen to fall into that sort of experience, what you have to do is forgive yourself. And this is a very important point. We have to forgive ourselves, our trespasses, because no one else is going to do it. Um, if you're in the very gutter, see where you are and admit it. As soon as you admit it, you can be like the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter. Get up and go home wherever home is. Get up and go to a safe place, somewhere where your spirit is not kicked and brutalized and your body not misused and abused. Get up. But you can't get up unless you see where you are and admit it. Uh, she was a calypso singer and dancer. She was also cast in a Broadway play and didn't do that. Instead, went and danced with Alvin Ailey, magazine editor in Cairo. She uh, was an associate editor on the Arab Observer. Uh, is anyone feeling a little overwhelmed by her fucking career at this point? Uh, about you not wanting to do shit because you were tired? <laughs> Features editor in Ghana, administrative assistant in Ghana, civil rights activist. She went to work with Dr. Martin Luther King to help him set up the SCLC. Angela was devastated when King was killed, which was on her 40th birthday. That's when she threw herself into writing. She didn't start writing her books till she was 40. Uh, she appeared on stage and in front of the camera. She's in the Broadway musical House of Flowers. She turned it down for Porgy and Bess. Uh, she's also in Roots, by the way, uh, if you want to see her. Uh, she's in the television program Roots. She was also a teacher uh, for 32 years. Now, let's get to this part since we've been talking about women tonight. Um, this country has been on a tear with the states' rights thing. Now, as we've talked about, the Second Amendment, for some reason, because white guys love it so much and they want to carry their guns around and wave their little thing in the air, is so much more important than everyone else's First Amendment right to free assembly and to free speech, and also more important than anything women could do with their bodies, because evidently women's bodies are a place of trepidation and their uh, uh, reproductive organs are very scary to a lot of people. Many states, not Washington State, which is the most progressive of all the states in the United States... And it is. I read a column this week in a Canadian paper that said, you know, Washington State raised the minimum wage to $15, but that's not the solution because blah, 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 blah. Really? Helping the working poor isn't the solution? You know, that's what I mean about courage. It doesn't take any courage to say that people shouldn't raise the minimum wage. You know what I mean? That's like saying, well, the schools are fine. Everything's cool. <laughs> I got a great table last night at a restaurant I love. 
That's what you have to remember when you read newspapers or you watch news. Remember that the people who are writing these things and uh, uh, saying these things on TV, these experts and these bloviators and these people who come on and opine about guns or opine about civil rights, opine about immigration or gay marriage or women's right to health care, are well-paid, privileged, and have nothing to do with the fucking world. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah. but what about you, Greg? Aren't you a rich comedian? As I've said many times on the show, my mother was a waitress and my dad was a bartender. I grew up in an apartment building. But you wear a suit and you act all poncy like you know shit. <laughs> <laughs> because like Maya Angelou, I aspire. I aspire. I aspire to climb higher. Five years after George Tiller's murder, women carry on his legacy. George Tiller was a doctor who has uh, uh, performed abortions in the state of Kansas. He was assassinated by anti-choice freaks. I do not use the word pro-life on this show. Because if you were really pro-life, you'd do as Bill Hicks once said. You'd lock arms around cemeteries and never let anyone out of them. People who are pro-life don't shoot doctors. Because don't you find some sort of dichotomy in being pro-life and killing someone at the same time? But what about all the babies? (laughs) You're an idiot. (laughs) If you think that abortion is baby killing and you don't think that abortion is a necessary part of women's health care, then you do not care for women. That's where that is fucking at. Why don't you just say it to yourself and admit it to yourself? You don't like women, and you don't want women to exercise their right to look after themselves. That's what you're saying. Um, again, if boner pills are denied to men, yeah. If men have to go through a screening and talk with a doctor about their boner pills and go through three sets. But you realize when you take the boner pills, you're going to get a heart on, yeah, I do. Why do women have to go through all this bullshit? We let the fucking Chris Browns of the fucking world run around and act like dickwads every fucking second of the day. And I'm taking an easy target there. Let's go a little higher than Chris Brown. You, we let every man run around. Uh, Wichita, Kansas. This is from MSNBC. A woman named uh, Erin Carmen, I-R-I-N Carmen, wrote this article. It's not easy to fill a job when the last person to hold it was murdered. But just over a year ago, that's what Julie Burkhart decided she had to do. Julie Burkhart is a doctor. Dr. George Killer, uh, Tiller, the, <laughs> oops, The abortion provider here in his clinic five years ago this week was murdered. Uh, This was five years ago. In 2009, anti-abortion activist, whatever his name was, shot Tiller in the head during services at Tiller's church. So if you think the forces of anti-choice are a righteous force that is trying to save lives, understand that they killed an abortion doctor in his church. He was not only an abortion doctor, he was a doctor looking after women. Because sometimes women need to do this procedure. But isn't it the most... I've reached the point where I don't want to hear any arguments anymore. If women aren't allowed to do what they want and have agency over their bodies, what is the point of having society? What is the point of talking about equality? What is the point of anything if women can't do whatever the fuck they want with their bodies? And further, there's been a lot of backlash lately about, oh, women, there's too much, you know, they're they're complaining about rape and shit like that. Almost every woman in this room knows what I'm talking about. 
women are raped all the time. I don't want to hit this too hard because I'm sure people listening to the show have been violated. Um, but what I'm going to say is this. Most rapes aren't reported at all, and most rapes are by people that, that women know. And uh, there can't be enough talk about it. With the fact that two young girls in India were raped and lynched uh, several weeks ago, with the fact that that cocksucker in uh, Isla Vista went out and felt that he was entitled to women's favors and then went out and shot a bunch of people, there can't be enough talk. I got a, a message on Facebook a week ago where a guy said, hey, you're coming down hard on men. Why don't you be a little, why don't you cheer us up? And I was like, you know, I will. I'll cheer you up in the first half when I tell jokes and shit. But in the second half, listen, dickwad. And I'm not calling him a dickwad because we've conversed over the internet. I, I just mean to, to all men. Murder was the only final act of violence committed against Dr. George Tiller and his clinic five years ago. Uh, Dr. Burkhart, with Tiller's clinic shuttered, they closed the clinic. Women in the Wichita area were being forced to travel for hundreds of miles from three to six hours each way to end their pregnancies. Now that's unfair. Men can buy a gun and men can buy boner pills anytime they like, any place they like. And that's the end of that fucking argument. But what about the fuck you? I don't want to hear any more of your argument. Um, Dr. Cheryl Chastine, a 32-year-old Chicago-based practitioner of family medicine, uh, volunteered to come down to Wichita and help. She wouldn't let what happened to Tiller stop her. I felt that killing an abortion provider is an act of terrorism. I couldn't agree more. We talk about terrorists all the time in this country, but they often are only people who are Muslim, or Arabic, or anything like that. We never talk about the insane amount of white guys who fucking shoot people up and are never called terrorists in this country. She has to keep her movement secret because she's being hassled constantly out of concern for her safety. And they won't show her face in MSNBC's video. Pardon me. The protesters only have one photo of her. And because Chris Chastine is young and many young women work at, or are patients, they often accost the wrong person. There's lots of anti-choice protesters standing outside yelling at her. Uh, let's see here. That's not the only bright spot. Here's a bright spot. Many you need to know this. Uh, a lot of six states, including Oklahoma, have enacted medically unnecessary requirements that abortion providers have admitting privileges at local hospitals, which in Texas has already closed at least one-third of the state's clinics. That's cruelty to women. Uh, the best part is this. Uh, Southwinds Women's Center actually plans to expand to Oklahoma City and possibly beyond. Um, Burkhart threw a first anniversary party and attended the clinic's parking lot. It might seem strange to have a party in an abortion clinic, but for the people who have taken up Taylor's legacy, it was an announcement that they were tired of fear and that they were open to the community they serve. Abortion is one of the most safe procedures you can go through uh, medically. Um, it's not dangerous. It doesn't cause cancer. Don't believe any of those lies. They are simply spread around because the first thing you do when you're creating a fascist society is to suppress women's right to choose. The first thing the Nazis did was take away abortion in the 30s. Really, Greg? Yeah. How do you know that? Because I'm fucking smart and shit. <laughs> Well, one quick one and then we'll go on. Uh, this is from The Guardian UK. Walmart moms walk off the job. This happened last week. By this point, it'll have been three weeks ago. Um, strikes in 20 cities come as a new report says Walmart top bosses received $104 million in taxpayer subsidies over six years. Speaking of welfare queens. 
The majority of mothers working at Walmart, which drew a $16 billion profit last year, earn less than $25,000 a year. 1.3 million women working in retail live on or near the poverty line. It's said that if major retailers in the U.S. raised wages to the equivalent of $25,000 for full-time work, it could lift half a million women out of poverty or near poverty. Or you could write an editorial about how raising wages isn't really going to work. Walmart moms walked off their jobs. Orlando, Chicago, Dallas, Pittsburgh, Southern California, the Bay Area. A report published on Wednesday raised a separate issue over Walmart. In terms of a loophole, the study said the company has been given a tax break of $104 million. And I love how they put this. Enough to cover the cost of free lunches for 33,000 school children. There's a way to put it that reaches home. Uh, the demo study found that women in retail were paid $4 an hour less than men. That's right now, right here, right in the United States, this very fucking minute. I'm not making it up. It's a fact. And don't fucking counter on me. And don't fucking write me about this, because I will throw your letter in the fucking toilet. <laughs> if you believe that women are equal in this country, you're fucking out of your mind. When I just read you these three little facts here, you should know these things here. Uh, also... Understand that uh, the people who run Walmart all are billionaires and that they won't pay anyone and that they keep people's wages down. But I go to Walmart to buy. I know you do, honey. I know you do. Times are fucking tough. We all have to do what we have to do. One last item. The International Monetary Fund chief says banks haven't changed since the financial crisis. Why are you talking to us about the International Monetary Fund? Well, two reasons. One, you may remember the last head of the International Monetary Fund. Exactly. Um, he had an incident with a maid in his hotel room and he was removed from that job and they gave Ms. Lagarde the job. Now, Ms. Lagarde's a very accomplished woman and this is what she said a couple of weeks ago at a banking conference. The managing director of the IMF told an audience in London six years on from the financial crisis that engulfed the global economy, banks were resisting reform and still too focused on excessive risk-taking to secure their bonuses at the expense of public trust. This is the head of the IMF, which is a giant evil fucking company that's in charge of all the money. Uh, and she says this, so she should know what the fuck she's talking about. Some prominent firms have been mired in scandals that violate the most basic ethical forms. She warned the too-big-to-fail problem among the world's largest financial institutions was still unresolved and remained a major source of systematic risk with implicit subsidies. Subsidy means getting paid money to do nothing. $70 billion in the U.S. and $300 billion in the Eurozone. In a speech, and this is how accomplished Ms. Lagarde is, littered with quotations from Winston Churchill to Pope Francis and Oscar Wilde, Lagarde said international progress to reform the financial system was too slow. We must acknowledge it stems from a fierce industry pushback uh, and blah, blah, blah. Um, we must recognize that reducing inequality is not easy. And this is what I'm always talking about on the show. Redistributive, I can't say the word, redistributive, 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 Thank you. <laughs> Policies always produce winners and losers. If we want capitalism to do its job, enabling as many people as possible to participate and benefit from the economy, it needs to be more inclusive. That means addressing extreme income disparity. The largest fucking crisis facing the world is income disparity. Who are the people on the end of income disparity? Women. Who are the other people on the income of disparity chart? Children. Um, if we want to change the world, 
Banks have to be held to account. Bankers have to be put in jail for the shenanigans they pull. There has to be fines levied, and they have to pay their fucking taxes and quit being given these fucking giant bonuses and payouts. Um, when you see people on TV talk about, uh, on financial television, you, you watch TV occasionally, I'm sure, or go on the internet. Uh, and if you do go on the internet or on your phone, please look up something beside your own social network. Look up some news and shit occasionally, and you'll find that a lot of people defend the banks all the time and are like, well, they're job providers and blah, <laughs> They're taking all the money. Um, the world's richest 85 people who could fit into a single London double-decker bus control the same wealth as the poorest half of the global population of 3.5 billion people. That's all you need to know about how the fucking world works. But what can we do about it? Get involved. That's all. You don't have to change the world. You're not going to change this system overnight. You're not going to topple the dominant paradigm. But bit by bit, and in 20 years' time, because you're much younger than I, when I'm dead, the world is going to be such an awesome place. <laughs> One, for that reason. And two... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> because attitudes will have changed. And the young people of today... Know that there's income disparity. Know that there's inequality in the sexes. Know that gay people are humans. Know that medical marijuana is a necessity. Know all these things. And I'm hoping that when my generation fucking dies off, uh, the world will be a gooder place where there can be such a thing as firm footing for everyone and maybe three squares for everyone and maybe water and shit like that. Uh, here's some uplifting shit, and then we'll do some questions. Yuri Kochiyama, activist and former World War II internee, dies at 93. This is on the NPR website. Yuri Kochiyama looks at, uh, looks, uh, let's see, Japanese-American activist Yuri Kochiyama died of natural causes at 93. Well done. Lifelong champion of civil rights in black, Latino, Native American, and Asian American communities. She was ahead of her time, and we caught up with her. Born in 1921 in the small town uh, south of Los Angeles, months after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, she and her family were forced to relocate to internment camps along with tens of thousands of other Japanese Americans. If you're too young to know this, let me hip you to the jive. During World War II, this country interred all of the Japanese Americans. Um, and th so their property was taken away from them and they were put in prison camps for the duration of World War II. But they were Japanese. No. Um, Mary Yuriki Nakahara Kochinama was from San Pedro, California, and she was put in an internment camp when she was 20 years old. Do you understand? Um, simply because they were Japanese, they were put in internment camps. Much like you'll find, people that are simply Arab are put in torture camps by us. Um, the United States has a lot to answer for with the victimization of people. But they were given reparations, yeah, like fucking 10 years ago and shit like that. Um, you have to understand that we've done a lot of nasty things to people who are native fucking Americans. And I don't mean Indians. I mean people who were born in America and are Americans. Uh, she met her late husband, Bill Kochiyama, who served with other Japanese-American soldiers in the 442 Regimental Combat Team at the Jerome Relocation Center. That's what they call them. They don't call them prison camps because we're America. They're relocation centers. Hey, you used to live somewhere, but we took all your shit. Now you're in a relocation center in Arkansas. No one has ever moved willingly from Los Angeles to Arkansas. <laughs> 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 
She met uh, Malcolm X in 1963, and when gunmen fired at Malcolm X, you know who Malcolm X is, do you not? Malcolm X was a black leader in this country, and he was a Muslim, and uh, uh, he spoke about lots of things. At one time, he was against white people and thought they were the enemy. Toward the end, his, his uh, perception changed, and he evolved in his... Uh, if there's no Malcolm X, there's no Martin Luther King. Malcolm X is a gigantic figure in American history. He was a pimp in Detroit named Detroit Red, and he spent time in prison, and he was a drug addict and all those things. He cleaned up his life, and he became a leader of people and unified a great deal of people and went around the third world to Africa and other places and spoke of the inequality in America. I'm not a diner till you make me a diner, he said. Um, Remember that anyone, as Louis C.K. said, any black person you see with gray hair remembers when there were colored-only bathrooms and colored-only lunch counters in this country. It's not ancient history. It's in the memory of man. Uh, Minutes after gunmen fired at Malcolm X in 1965, she rushed toward him and cradled his head in her lap. Uh, There's a picture that shows Kochiyama peering worriedly through her horn-rimmed glasses at Malcolm X's bullet-riddled body. In the 80s, her husband pushed for reparations and formal government apology for Japanese-American internees through the Civil Liberties Act, which President Reagan signed into law. Well done, Reagan. I thought you hated Reagan. Well, well done him for that. Uh, She was not your typical Japanese-American person, especially a Nisei or second-generation Japanese-American, said Tim Toyama, Kochiyama's second cousin. Uh, She was definitely ahead of her time. And we cut up with him. There you are. Uh, one last one. Don Zimmer passed away. Don Zimmer was a coach, a baseball manager, and a baseball player. He played on the 1955 championship Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a coach on the 1987 Giants. Bill Lee, uh, the immortal stoner pitcher and free spirit, uh, played on the 75 Boston Red Sox with Don Zimmer. Don Zimmer was the manager of that team. They lost uh, uh, to the, uh, 75 or 78? 78, sorry. Darren Johnson managed 75 team. 78, they lost to a home run by Bucky Dent uh, in the last day of the season on a playoff game. Bill Lee called Don Zimmer a gerbil. Um, Don Zimmer was quite short, got hit in the head with a couple of baseballs into his career, had a steel plate in his head. In 1987, he was a coach on the Giants. I was in Candlestick Park with my friends Will and Debbie Durst. And a ball came out in the outfield. Uh, we were allowed onto the field. I was wearing my Giants jacket. I was very sexy and young then. And <laughs> I picked up the ball, and Don Zimmer came running out. His nickname when he was on the Giants was Popeye because he always had a chaw on his cheek, right? And Don Zimmer came out, and he went, You can keep that ball, but you got to get the other ones back. <laughs> and I couldn't have been more excited. Later, several of you baseball fans will remember that Pedro Martinez had an incident with Don Zimmer. He was Joe Torre's uh, uh, right-hand man and sat next to Joe Torre during all the Yankees championship teams. And Don Zimmer was the strategist and, he would, and Torre would confer with him. Uh, a fracas ensued where Don Zimmer, who was I think about 70 years old at the time, ran out to the mound and Pedro Martinez, the pitcher, threw this 70-year-old man to the ground. It was an awesome moment in baseball history. <laughs> Don Zimmer is swirling in the heavens as is... Mm. Our Japanese activists. Let's take some questions and then we'll fuck off into this good night. The microphone's right over here. Uh, if you'll queue up over here, we'll do that. Right here. I'll just this up. There we go. Okay. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. What's your name? Tom. Hi, Tom. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The, the what? The, the what? Oh, yeah, Sunset Limited, that's what it's called. I didn't watch all of it. I only got about halfway through. Was it good? You loved it. You're a man, right? Yeah. And my question, most underrated female 
William Lloyd. Oh, that's so cute, Deborah Isle. Or Curly Gates from Wow, that's so amazing that you said that because I happened to see both of them live. Uh, I'm from San Francisco in the 80s, and I saw Romeo Boyd uh, before they had their big hit. And you may remember Romeo Boyd's hit went, uh, I might like you better if we slept together. But there's something in your eyes that says maybe that's never, never say never. Uh -uh." And then... um, who was the other one? Oh, Pearl Harbor. I saw Pearl Harbor with the explosions uh, right after release it, and they had been on American Bandstand. Um, I'm going to say Deborah Isle, or, or, or she was known in San Francisco, Deborah. Uh, Deborah Isle will be your most underrated uh, vocalist there. Pearl was cool, uh, and Pearl married Paul Simonon from The Clash for a brief time. Um, and I saw Pearl play with uh, Jane Dornacker and the um, Leela and the Snakes. Oh, wow. Yeah, in the 70s. So it was really cool. The rest of you guys can order a pizza or whatever during this portion of the show since <laughs> you appear to be disinterested beyond all measure. But you may want to go back and check out Romeo Boyd and Pearl Harbor and the Explosions because uh, there were women in rock uh, before Rihanna and uh, Miley Cyrus. <laughs> and they were empowered women who did what they want with their own sexuality. They weren't bimbos uh, for men's amusement and shit like that. Uh, they were pretty fucking strong and they led rock bands. And uh, that's the groovy part. I think about Debbie Harry. I think about Patti Smith. I think about even Stevie fucking Nicks and Christine uh, McVie. There was loads and loads of women. Genya Raven. I can think of the, uh, dozens of Joni Mitchell, um, uh, Carly Simon. Don't let me go on and on. Uh, in any case, uh, I'll, I'll go with Deborah Isle on that one. Anybody else have a question or is that it for the... There you are. What's your name? Mac or Matt? Matt. Matt. I just, my ears just popped. Have I been screaming all night? <laughs> yes, Matt. So with the financial success of the legalization of marijuana in Colorado, hopefully in a couple of weeks to come here in Washington. Is it a couple of weeks? Uh, July. So oh, I love it. Yeah. Not, not too far out. Um, do you think it's realistic that in the next, say, 15 years, we see a national I don't see a nationalized movement. I see it going state by state. Um, but you may be right. It may go national. I do see a bunch of states folding, and I think it's going to be Alaska, Hawaii, uh, 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 Oregon first. Oregon first. Uh, California, possibly Nevada, and I'm not kidding about fucking Nevada, and I'm not kidding about Utah either. They're going to see the financial um, uh, advantages of this. Maybe Montana, Idaho. You guys are way, you guys know about Idaho. Because you live next door to Idaho. Idaho is a mixture of trout leaping into the air, the beads of water shooting off like a thousand prisms as the sun catches their fucking cataclysmic, unbelievable diamond-like, yeah, and mixed with dudes with spiked helmets wearing a motorcycle riding around with a fucking scary-ass tattoo and shit like that. So there's that, you know, there's that dualism. There's that duality to Idaho. Uh, But yes, I do. I believe the entire West will fold. New Mexico is also another state, I believe, will uh, uh, legalize it utterly. And then I think you'll find um, some of the littler states on the East Coast, perhaps Maryland and um, uh, uh, Vermont and shit like that. And then it'll be maybe New York, New Jersey. We'll see. New Jersey and New York are moving slowly toward it. Um, The South's going to be a tougher call. If I was a betting man, and I'm not... Um, I might bet that Louisiana might do it because they're desperate for income. And they already have gambling and they already have, uh, you know, licentiousness. Uh, 
sex and libertinism. So that's my answer to that question. I'm hoping it happens. Here's my fear about marijuana being made legal, that the corporations take over everything and that it's not fun or cool anymore. It's, <laughs> I'm a stoner from way back. I go back to the 70s. So when you tell me that uh, giant corporations are going to take over and there's going to be giant farming and things and da-da-da-da, that kind of scares me a little bit on the marijuana tip. Uh, I think that Colorado did it right because they demanded local growers, and I think that's the way to go. Uh, when you start to let giant agribusiness in, and by giant agribusiness, I mean the tobacco companies. When you start to let giant agribusiness in, because I'm telling you, Marlboro, Legit and Myers, all those fucking companies uh, that grow uh, uh, tobacco are desperate to jump in on the marijuana bandwagon and take all the fucking money for themselves. And there's not going to be a lot of good done uh, in that regard. So that's my answer to that. Let's have someone else. No woman wants to talk? Well, go on, Giants fan. Tell me your name again, brother. Okay, what's your name? Uh, Tony. Hi, Tony. Uh, yeah, from Denver, Colorado. I was in Denver, Colorado. You're not going to believe this. 2010 and 2012 in the same fucking hotel room. Wow. <laughs> not for the winning game, but for the first two games. And I watched both games in my hotel room. I wasn't working either night. The night that Panda Bear hit three home runs against uh, Verlander and the other cat uh, on Detroit. And the night that the Giants scored, what, 10, 12 runs in the first game against Texas in 2010. I was in the same... I'm, this year I'm in uh, Maui and, uh, and Tallinn during the postseason. And I'm almost tempted to fucking cancel all that and fucking call up Denver and go, I need to be in the hotel in Denver. Because I couldn't believe the synchronicity of it, to be sitting in the hotel room, uh, smoking a joint in the bathroom, and trying to fucking get my mind around the fact that my team was good and that, that we weren't the 62 Giants, we weren't the 71 Giants, we weren't the 2002 Giants, we weren't the 97 Giants, you know. Uh, what's your question? Well, I've discussed it briefly on the show before, but thank you for asking, and I'll discuss it ever so briefly now. The owners who own the game, who are to a person except for Magic Johnson in this current day and age, white guys, um, countenanced and abetted all of the drug use and steroid use of the 90s and 2000s. The players, you may uh, uh, notice, are called by the media often cheaters. The players did what they were required to do, which was be outstanding and hit a lot of fucking taters. And you notice no one complained during the 90s that scores were all of a sudden 12 to 8 and shit like that every goddamn day. And the owners let that happen. And Bud Selleck, who I believe is the commissioner of baseball, as well as an unbelievable overarching fucking prat, um... (laughs) who destroyed the Montreal Expos franchise, who's done nothing but evil for baseball, who called a tie game during an all-star game, who made the all-star game count during the postseason, who's done nothing but evil toward baseball, uh, countenanced all of this. So I don't blame the players because the players, and try to understand me on this, I know it's a difficult concept to wrap your head around, the players are employees of a giant entertainment corporation, as are we all. Whatever job you have, there are people who own that job, and then you are at the bottom of the rungs of the ladder. And believe it or not, even though baseball players get a lot of money and they get to act like dicks and whatever, and they're professional athletes, 
They're only now earning the money they deserve. Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle and all the great players you can think of from the past, Stan Musial, whoever the fuck it is, never got the money they deserved until binding arbitration was allowed, which means the ability to uh, petition your team to give you a better wage for what you fucking deserve. Now, Barry Bonds, definitely fucking juiced. Barry Bonds was the greatest hitter I ever saw. Is he the greatest baseball player of all time? That you can argue. I think if you want to pick for pure numbers, Henry Aaron. If you want to pick for pure talent, Mickey Mantle. If you want to pick for World Series, Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle or Yogi Berra. If you want to pick for flair and delightfulness and what lifted people's fucking hearts and made their fucking butterflies fly around their brain, Willie Mays. If you, you know, there's a million different players you can think of, but... Understand that, first of all, before the first hot dog was sold, and I'm talking about in the 50s and 60s, the owners had already made all their money. And that's all that matters to these, if you'll pardon the expression, motherfucking assholes. Uh, So I believe Barry Bonds, was he a wonderful human being? Was he warm and kind to everyone he met? No. He fucking wasn't. Was he a great fucking ball player who did what he was required to do and hit 73 home runs in a season and broke Henry Aaron's record? And then you have to see fucking apologists for the owners go on TV like Bob Costas and shit and go, well, I don't even care that Barry Bond... (laughs) Fuck you. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. So does Roger Clemens. So does Rafael Palmeiro. So does Mark McGuire. So do all the people who were accused of fucking juicing. So let's stop being moralistic about it and let's get realistic about it and fucking put things in perspective and shit like that. And that's how I feel about it. And I thank you. Yes, my darling. What's your name? What's your name? D'Artagnan? That's fantastic. You may call me Prupos. What, what was that? Sorry, what was the first part? All I heard was the assholes part. What do you think is the reason why white people are always the hugest assholes in history? Oh, what is the reason why rich people are always the biggest assholes in history? Because they're rich. <laughs> if you're familiar with the word entitlement, uh, you'll find it all the time. You'll see people come on TV, like, for instance, uh, just to make a very base and obvious point. If you remember during the last presidential election, Donald Trump, who's quite rich, who did not make his own fortune, his father made his fortune for him, uh, would come on TV and go, I'm going to run for fucking president, I swear to God. If things don't change, I'm going to fucking run for president. You're like, one, you're a pinhead. Two, your hair is an unsupportable fucking orange beaver. Two, three... Why are we believing anything you say? You don't, uh, you don't contain wisdom. You don't know anything, anything else that anyone doesn't do. You don't have insight into the human condition. You're simply an entitled asshole. And that's how rich people feel the world works. The Koch brothers, uh, whoever you can think of, they look at the world like this. Mm, there's what I deserve. And that's, and that, that's what's wrong with uh, so many people, and, and that's why I think that. And it's never changed, by the way. In the Middle Ages, kings and barons ran everything, and there were people outside rolling balls of shit up a hill, and they were called serfs. And that's what the people who work at Walmart and all of the fast food franchises that you go to are. They are people who are underpaid 
many of the people who work at Walmart have to ask for public assistance and food stamps and things like that. Know that about the billionaires who run that company. Let's stop venerating people who make money for the simple fact that they make money. It's not a trick and it's not something that makes society better. Sharing money is something that makes society better than making money. What's your question, my darling? Please, can we have a woman before my life ends? <laughs> yes, my darling, what's your name? Uh, Cecily. Hi, Cecily. Hello. Uh, I have kind of a two-part question, but the last one is short. The first one is, uh, uh, Carl Sagan or Neil Grasshopper? Both, and that's my Kobayashi Maru to weasel out of that answer. <laughs> I love Neil deGrasse Tyson because he has rode right up these fucking uh, right-wing Christians' butt. The people that believe that Jesus rode a triceratops to a gun show are having a heart attack because Neil deGrasse Tyson says things like, the world wasn't created 4,000 years ago because it couldn't have been scientifically. You'll find that the world is billions of years old. He'll say, global warming is not a theory. It is a fact that has been proven empirically. Carl Sagan, one, a giant pothead. Two, an unbelievable humanist and a wonderful human being. And I think both of them are doing a service for mankind by proving in this anti-intellectual world that we live in, in the world that we live in that's full of people who come on telly and are as dumb as can fucking be. Uh, and and, and uh, what did the scarecrow say in The Wizard of Oz? Uh, she goes, how can you talk if you don't have any brains? And he goes, some people without any brains do an awful lot of talking. <laughs> They're doing a world of service. But science isn't everything. I believe in magic. And I believe in uh, the ephemeral. And I believe in uh, th that there's things that happen in this world that there are no explanations for. But I do also believe that your crappy belief system does not trump science. And as I've said on the show before, if you believe in Christianity, uh, uh, Judaism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Islam, it is a truth, a truth. There are many truths in the world. And one of the truths in the world is that this planet is billions of years old. It's destroyed itself a million times. Before we existed, the world destroyed itself a zillion times. And that we require people like Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson to remind us of our humility in the face of the giant overwhelming uh, force of nature that is the universe. Uh, and so that's my answer. Thank you very much, Cecily. You're very kind. Oh, oh, the twofer. I forgot there was a follow-up. There was a show a couple of years ago on VH1 called Rock Wives. And the guitar player for Billy Idol, Screaming Steve, had a wife. Does anyone remember her name? She had enormous fake breasts and, and, and giant blonde hair. I think her name was Babette, or oh, my wife will kill me for not remembering this. She's my spirit animal. That's it? One more? One more, and then we'll fuck off into this good night. What's your name, sir? Uh, my name's Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Thank you. Um, Me, I'm a Gregorio. <laughs> um, I, friends, my, uh, myself and some friends started a podcast recently. Awesome. And, What's it called? Uh, it's called Beer Plus 
I love it. And uh, we just taste beer and drink a lot, talk about it. <laughs> but, uh, um, Skull. Uh, uh, my friend and I have an argument about uh, uh, the music. Like the music you play, you play Steely Dan, and, and you play a lot of music. Are you fortunate to play ro- pay royalties on all that stuff? No. We live in a... Uh, up until now, the internet has been a freebooting fucking free jock system of insane, under-fucking-supervised uh, bullshit. What I'm afraid of with this current thing that's going on with the FCC where they're going to force people to pay for internet and things is that... Exactly. All of a sudden, they're going to start looking at what we're doing over here. Uh, no, we haven't at this point. It's a very, imper- it's a very pertinent question. Uh, my theme song is by an artist called Jaw Wobble, who you may remember from uh, Public um, Image Limited. And uh, uh, I've used it without his permission for ages and ages. I've recently had one done for me that, that I'll be unveiling soon when it gets finished. But uh, uh, in any case, no, that's the answer to that question. So up until this point, you're safe. Uh, but, uh, but, but be advised at a certain point. Uh, like, what was his name, Lars from Metallica? Yeah. You're going to have to pay. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Cheers, buddy, and good luck on your podcast. Thank One you. more, and then we'll go. Yes, sir, what's your name? Paul. Hi, Paul. Uh, I love your gospel, by the way. <laughs> it's one of the synoptic gospels. No one's ever read the fucking Bible in this room? <laughs> Educate yourselves, God damn it. Yeah, but the Bible is pertinent. A lot of people believe in it, you guys. Think about it and shit. Blessed are the poor, for there shall be the kingdom of heaven. And my favorite quote, the shortest one, Jesus fucking wept. It doesn't say fucking. Oh, kittens. <laughs> kittens McTavish. Well, there, where do we begin with the education system? The problem is that all the money in this country goes to pay defense contractors giant bounties. And all the money in this country goes to pay Walmart and con- companies of that ilk subsidies. And that we don't funnel all of the money to education. As I said, when I was in Finland, when I was in Holland, when I was in France, I rarely met a person who didn't speak at least two languages. Now, there's no reason, even though we're geographically not close to any other countries except Mexico, that we shouldn't all speak two or three languages from an early age. And that speaks to the underfunding. Uh, what, what's that a bumper sticker that you see all the time? When the, when the Defense Department has to have a bake sale? Right. Uh, schools have to have bake sales. Sc- teachers have to buy their own students books and pencils and shit like that. Um, one of the ways to create fascism, aside from denying women the rights to do what they want with their own body, is to undereducate the populace. Um, I don't mean that every person here should know who Shakespeare is and shit like that. I just mean that every person should be hip to what's going on all the time. And that this vast information flow that comes through your fucking personal communication device is available to you at all times. You don't just have to look up the same shitty things you're looking up all the time. You can look up lots of different things. You can go on Al Jazeera. You can go on The Guardian. You can go to different websites all around the world and find out what's going on. But that's hard. (laughs) 
the main thing is uh, we have to be we have to take some of the money away from um, the people who are draining it from us, which, in my opinion, is the Defense Department and the, the making of war. And secondly, we have to educate ourselves. If you are a brother, a sister, or a father, or a mother, or you know a child, or you know a teenager, or something like that, um, it would behoove you to give them books and to give them encouragement and to make your life an important part of their life by forcing them to think analytically and critically about all the information they receive so they are not a swallowing guppy and a sheep, and to mix 7,000 metaphors in one crappy sentence, a swallowing guppy sheep, you know the furry, you know the furry kind of sheep that live in guppy land. Uh, people believe the shit they see on TV. People believe the crap they read in the newspapers. It's all lies printed by corporations to make you do their bidding. You have to be able to think analytically about what's coming into your life and deal with that information. Is it going to make the world better? No. It makes the world complex. But you'll feel better about how you think. Learning how to think is as important as what you think. The reason why you look on the TV and you see these people come on and you go, that person's crazy. They think the world is this and this and this is because they haven't been given the parameters. They haven't been given the, the, the tools to understand how you should be able to look at something and analyze it. Uh, so I think that's the biggest um, issue in this country. People get down on teachers quite a lot. You'll find that one side often blames teachers for poisoning children's minds when I find that teachers are woefully underpaid. And let me put it this way. I'll put it real simple in two sentences. Who are the teachers you remember? The teachers that sucked and the teachers that made a difference in your life. Those are the teachers you remember. All the rest go by the wayside. I'm speaking to everyone in this room and everyone that's listening. You remember the teacher that told you that there was something inside you that inspired you to do something, to read a book, to write a paper, to write a poem, da da da. And you also remember the teacher that put you down and fucking quashed you, right? Am I right or am I right? So there's nothing more important than teachers. But the point is, we're all teachers to each other, uh, right? Uh, I will light a lamp and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, uh, that's how I feel. I, I really feel like I didn't really study very hard in school because I was busy because there was, you know, there was girls and dope and shit. Um, so I taught myself. Uh, and I think anyone can, but I think it's a very difficult thing because of the situations people find themselves in. Um, but I would, I would dismantle the defense department and make the education department as well-funded as that. And you would find that this country will spring fucking forward. And you'll find that uh, uh, progressive thought would, will be held by more people than you could possibly imagine if only uh, education was better in this country. And if only we didn't say things like, well, he's got a long beard, he's in the Taliban, and shit like that. <laughs> That kind of reactionary thinking. Reactionary thinking gets you nowhere, where I feel like analytical thinking creates a dialogue, and a dialogue creates understanding, if not agreement. We don't have to agree with everything, but we have to understand that we disagree and why we disagree. And more importantly than anything, the thing that drives me crazy is people don't know why they believe the things they believe. That's what blows my mind. Right? Just you and me on that one, buddy. But...
people will go, well, I think everyone that should have a gun and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you don't know why you believe that. That really is weird to me. Uh, you would think that people would think things through and go, this is the reason I believe the things I believe. Um, your parents, by the way, might be very wise. They also might be full of shit and trying to fill you with indoctrination that you don't require. So um, that's what critical thinking is. Longer answer than I intended. I said we were going to leave after that one, but it wasn't very funny, so we're not going to leave after that one. Thank you for your question. Thank you, brother. Are you, you, wanna, you got one? What's your name, sir? Hello, Samantha. Hi, Chris. Um, I was wondering, um, so I lost my hair at a really early age. I see that, yes. Genetics. I have no, I have no, uh, my, my father had hair. My grandfather did not have hair. Uh, my other grandfather did have hair. I couldn't be more grateful because uh, it's all I've got at this late date. <laughs> you have been the smartest crowd in the world. I have been the smartest man in the world. Thank you for coming to the show. May every page that you turn to a satchel page, may every bell that rings to your tune full pop about. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very motherfucking bonds. Good night, everybody. I wish you nothing but love. Thank you.